Welcome to the Australian Naval History video and podcast series. It is a production of the Very Active Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, in partnership with the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, the Submarine Institute of Australia, and the Sea Power Centre Australia. I'm Greg Swindon, a former naval officer and now naval historian at the Sea Power Centre Australia. This is the third of three episodes in the RAN in PNG. It looks at operations of RAN minor war vessels in Papua New Guinea waters prior to PNG independence and the subsequent involvement of RAN personnel in PNG's patrol boats and landing craft. The patrol boats undertook regular patrols throughout PNG and neighbouring countries, including the PNG Fly and Seapik River systems. These operations were highlighted in two defence PR documentary films at the time, Island Patrol and Seapik Patrol. Specifically, the vessels in involved were five units of the PNG Patrol Boat Squadron, PNG Pabron, the attack class patrol boats, HMA ships, the Taipei, Samurai, Lei, Ladava and Madang, and the RAN LCHs that operated in PNG waters on nation building tasks during the period prior to independence. The LCHs, HMA ships, Buna and Salamaua were transferred to the PNG DF. Joining me today are retired mm -hmm. RAN officers who served in PNG waters as part of the PNG division. They are Commodore Sam Bateman, who was the CEO of HMAS Aitabi, the first PNG-based attack class patrol boat, and later Director of Maritime Operations in the PNGDF. Commander Jerry Latton, who succeeded Sam as CEO of HMAS Aitabi, and led a major patrol boat operation up the Fly River to Kaniga. Vice Admiral Chris Ritchie, a former Chief of Navy, who was CEO of HMAS Tarakan when she went up the Fly River, and Commodore Lou Rago, who served in the PNG patrol boat post-independence. Gentlemen, welcome. Sam, starting off with you first. Um, when you first went to PNG, you were in charge of ITP, you know, I think that was November 1967. Um, what did you do, and was your first deployment to PNG, and, and what was it like? Well, I think I should probably start with a bit of the history of the attack class patrol boats. I mean, the, they were conceived in the days of Malayan uh, emergency and Indonesian confrontasi, and, the, and they were really being built for operations in Southeast Asia, but five were always going to be deployed to uh, Papua New Guinea. I was warned out to be captain of the ITP quite early in 1967, but the program was progressively delayed during that year, and I had a bit of time on my hands. And firstly, I was given the task of uh, drafting a document which became AHP 10, which uh, uh, had a lot of local knowledge, navigational knowledge about Papua New Guinea. Uh, Originally, it had its origins in some World War II reports of uh, small ships around Papua New Guinea. Jerry Latton, who'd been earlier CEO of HMAS Banks, had done a lot of good work too with uh, sketch surveys, local knowledge, local navigational knowledge, because so much of the waters of Papua New Guinea in those days were un unsurveyed. I was then posted to Tarangau in, I think it was June 1967, to prepare for patrol boats whilst ITP was still being finishing being built at uh, Walker's in Maryborough. Uh, surprisingly, I was called back to HMAS Waterhen to do some work there, which meant that I left my family behind in uh, Manus for the best part of four months, which was a pretty hard mm -hmm. slog for my wife and the small young with the young kids. Uh, then eventually ITP uh, was launched and finished. Uh, on November, the, the, the Navy had long-term plans. There were two patrol boats, lead patrol boats, HMAS Attack being built at Evans Deacon, HMAS IDP being built at Walkers in Maryborough. And uh, the Navy, because the program had been delayed during the year, the Navy said, we're going to commission these patrol boats, first two, on November the 13th in, uh, in Brisbane. Well, November the 11th, we did our final sea trials, acceptance trials in uh, Harvey Bay and the IDP. Uh, the head of uh, Walker's shipbuilding said, uh, go back alongside, Sam, full, what about a full speed run back alongside? Rang down for maximum revs, loud noises from the engine room, and we're blowing <laughs> up a gearbox. And of course, the first reaction then, everybody was blowing everything. But the Walker's uh, people put their heads together. I was blessed, fortunately, with two very good ERAs. A chap called Peter Webb was the chief ERA who was subsequently commissioned another fellow, Peter Duncan. 
Now, so we can, if we go up the river, we can change this gearbox in, a, in 24 hours. We had a time, time slot opportunity. You could hang up and down the Mary River at high tide. Uh, fortunately, they, they changed the gearbox inside 24 hours, and I don't think it attack class patrol had ever successfully you know, changed the gearbox in such a short period of time. Final little basin trials alongside. Down the Mary River we went. At that stage it was too late to go around the top of Breaksea Spit to uh, get to Brisbane in time for the commissioning ceremony on uh, the 13th. We had to go down through Sandy Strait and out over Wide Bay Bar. Fortunately, uh, I'd had some previous experience of Wide Bay Bar and I don't think the powers that be in the Navy ever appreciate that their brand new patrol boat was going through waters which I think any fleet navigating officer would have said, you know, verboten. Uh, because the, the attack class also had two design faults. One was that the, uh, the, air, the saltwater inlet was up on the side of the, the ship and I think it, they'd found with attack during trials in Brisbane that there was a risk of losing suction. So they'd sent HMAS Anzac up to escort us from Wide Bay Bar down to Brisbane. She was waiting outside Wide Bay Bar. They were not very happy with us because I think they'd lost a weekend alongside <laughs> in Sydney. But we got to Brisbane, anchored at uh, Pile Light early in the morning the 13th and commissioned that morning after a very hectic uh, few hours. Uh, and then up to Tarangau. And then up to Tarangau. Mm -hmm. We arrived back in Tarangau, I think from memory, we had Christmas in Cairns and uh, arrived in Tarangau, New Year's Eve in Samurai, and uh, arrived in Tarangau, I think, on the 2nd of January. Uh, so it was a very sort of tumultuous period in terms of, uh, you know, the first arrival of the class patrol boat and PNG. Mm. Uh, and that started our program. I mean, the, we were followed up there by Samurai a few months later. Uh, task of the patrol boats, uh, surveillance of waters, fish-rich waters. Uh, uh, later on, there were a number of arrests of Taiwanese fishing boats by the PNG patrol boats. Uh, we did some overseas trips. We visited uh, foreign, uh, used to go down to the Solomon Islands, of course, which was still independent, uh, still a British colony at the time. And in Itapi, we did one trip over to the Federated States of Micronesia and visited uh, Ponopean Truck. Uh, otherwise, going around PNG waters, uh, as we heard in the earlier segment, the PNG Coast Watching Service was very much underway at the time. And I think one way or another, the patrol boats would have visited almost every little remote mission station, patrol post, whatever, on the coast around the, around the country, where quite a few of the people were coast watchers. So that was a task that was still carried on with the patrol boats through that uh, period in the early 19, uh, late 1960s. And what was the crew number on board a from class. memory, I think uh, when we commissioned ITP, uh, I think the crew was, I think it might have been 21, uh, three senior sailors, two ERAs and a coxswain, uh, a, a leading electrician, a leading seaman, uh, a, a leading stoker, uh, and navies and stokers. Uh, we had five Papua New Guineans when we first commissioned ITP. Mm -hmm. uh, a leading seaman and uh, four able or ordinary seamen. Uh, when I left Idape, at the time when I handed over to Jerry Latin two years later, I think we'd gone back to that stage, there were probably only about four Australians left and the rest of the crew were Papua New Guineans because the process of localisation had proceeded quite a pace over that two year period. I think at that stage probably the COXO, chief engineer, perhaps the coxswain and probably the leading electrician were, were still uh, and as a radio operator, of course, to Australians. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Jerry, you spent a lot of time up in, uh, in PNG waters in command of small vessels. What, what were the problems operating in that part of the world and some of the operational challenges in, in being there? Well, w one of the first problems were uh, the, the problems created by the very rigid system of navigation that naval people are taught to use. Uh, in PNG in those days, you forgot about all that. Uh, uh, we didn't have the charts to tell us where we could safely go and we couldn't in all uh, good sense refuse to go there because all the locals could go there. If the Navy wouldn't go into these places, what was wrong with the Navy was the attitude. Uh, so we had to make do. Um, I achieved something in uh, getting some German charts 
because so the Germans had surveyed the north coast of, uh, of what was then the territory of New Guinea um, reasonably well. They weren't very accurate, but they had detailed uh, large-scale charts of a lot of anchorages and so on that were simply not available uh, through the hydrographer RAN until he was asked, and uh, eventually he, he gave us some German charts. So that was a help. Uh, and we also didn't, uh, we didn't hold back from sharing our knowledge with other mariners. I uh, used to, de I developed a, a sort of a, a network of locals that I consulted and got news from. Um, and all that helped. You knew where you could go and where you couldn't. Um, the technique for navigating in um, dangerous uh, waters made dangerous by coral was firstly to have the sunlight in the right position. You wanted to have the sun behind you. And with a bit of luck, with the very clean, clear water that we had around there, you could see the reefs. Uh, we were looking at uh, depths of um, anything less than three metres was a problem. A severe problem, in fact, less than three metres, less than four metres was a, something to be careful of. But um, with a man up the mast on mm -hmm. when it was necessary, you could see your way. Uh, I had some close calls doing it that way, but uh, it, it worked okay. Um, but that was in clear water. In muddy water, which is what prevails along most of the southern coast of Papua, from the border all the way up to Samurai. It's all muddy there. Um, close to shore, uh, you took your chances. But fortunately, because it was muddy, there wasn't a whole lot of coral. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you touched anything, touch wood, it was mud. Um, and it usually was. Uh, so those, those are some of the problems. And we got by and built up um, uh, a, a body of work, of uh, little sketch plans, places you could go, shortcuts you could take, and so on. And these were passed on to the other CIOs as uh, they came in? As, as they came on, and we, we shared the information as much as we could. Through this AHP DEN, 10 document I was mentioning, yeah. which yeah. was a local knowledge guide to Papua New Guinea's waters. That Navy office didn't know about? Or? No, Navy office, no. hydrographic <laughs> office, bless them. Sam, you've mentioned you know uh, localising with the with the PNG personnel. How did the the Australians, noting that for many years we'd had a white Australia policy, how did they get on with the the local PNG sailors as they became came on board? Well, I think fortunately, uh, I mean, I'm thinking particularly here of Idape, the senior sailor, Australian senior sailors, and the two Australian leading hands I had, the electrician and the and one seaman, and and the, and the state leading stoker for a while, were very good fellows. And it was only later on in my time in Itapi where I think the leading electrician found himself the only white sailor and domestic of PNG sailors, and he used to have a bit of grumbles. There used to be a, you know not not serious troubles, but I detected there was a little bit of sort of friction there because uh, largely because he was in trying to impose the full standards you expect from an REN mess deck and wasn't necessarily getting it from the PNG sailors. But uh, generally we didn't, uh, you know, things went pretty smoothly. It's a good small ship environment sort of thing, everybody mm -hmm. pulls together. And I think the, you know, the PNG sailors, uh, the, the, uh, with, these were all what we call new PNG people, so they're all quite well educated and I think, uh, and, and that obviously helped. I mean. Jerry in the banks earlier had, had of course, the old PNG people who probably often didn't speak English pigeon. But you know the, the crews we had, the PNG people, the new patrol boats, the new PNG people in the tech class patrol boats were all quite well educated, good English, etc. And did they come from a wide cross section of people from PNG, or were they from all one particular area? Or no, they came from all across uh, PNG. We had. Uh, you probably know there's quite a lot of ethnic differences between the different peoples of Papua New Guinea. The Bougainville people are very black, very dark, and we had an able seaman Lugabai in the first commission of uh, Itapi. And I remember we first tied up alongside uh, uh, HMAS Attack, and Attack had a leading stoker, Aboriginal leading stoker, leading seaman, uh, leading stoker Simpson, I think his name was. He looked across and saw able seaman Lugabai and said, Gee, I thought I was black, but he's shiny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Jerry, what about uh, your time on board? Uh, any issues there? Or no, well, yeah, broadly, as, as according, uh, according to what um, Sam has just said, uh, but I, I would disagree with Sam on one point. In the, the old PNG sailors were generally all New Guineans. There were, there were only a handful of, of Papuans among them, four or five perhaps, among the 60 to 110, depending on how many we had. Uh, but most of the um, uh, old PNG sailors had a, it, there was a predominance of Finchfarpen people uh, because the first Teichemaeus Tarangau at Dregerhaven, adjacent to Finchhaven, um, generated a lot of people from that area. They'd been recruited there locally and from the accompanying islands, the, the Tami Islands off, off the coast at, at Finchhaven and the islands in Vitiaz Strait, uh, Rook Island, Long Island mm -hmm. uh, and other smaller islands as well. Um, uh, the the Papuans, I don't know how they got in, because um, <laughs> I don't think there was any effective recruiting from there. There were a few, a few Manus Islanders in the old PNG and there were some Sepiks and Madang people as well, but very few Papuans. But eventually a, a pretty good cross-section. Yes, cross yeah. and I think just country. going it became, on... became a good cross-section yep. once the new PNG system was yep. developed and because they were looking for educated people hmm. and they had to tap the whole of the country and they got Highlanders as well. Right. I had the experience... Who may not have seen the ocean before. Hmm? That's right. <laughs> I, uh, I had the experience very early in my time in Idaby. Um, I'd gone alongside about, about week two in Ley, which was a very tight little berthing, and um, one of the seamen got a line around a screw. And that was a bit embarrassing. And it was a you know, blot on my copy book and it didn't look good for the local people. And I said, listen, young fella, down you go into the water and get it off. And his face went quite notably pale. Uh, but he went down the ladder uh, and went underwater and came up again and went underwater and came up again and eventually got the line off. He couldn't swim. He was a Highlander. <laughs> <laughs> the coxswain was trying to tell me this. I said, coxswain, get out of the way. I want that line up this group. <laughs> I think you also mentioned here that the, from I think about the early 1960s, had always been one RAN officer in Port Moresby, who apart from sort of being the local naval officer in Port Moresby, his job was recruiting for the P&G division. And he used mm -hmm. to travel around and recruit and, and thinking back too, I think we probably got it into the P&G division. This is probably another difference to the army side of things. We probably got recruits who were, in terms of educational level, were probably a, above the national level to some mm -hmm. extent. Mm. And, and that's when we started getting uh, Papuans. And I remember the first P&G radio operator we had in, uh, in Ida P was a Papuan from Samurai. And he was a very bright radio operator. But we had, you know, we had other issues. I mean, uh, the, uh, the first PNG cook we had was given to doing things like roasting a piece of corned beef or stewing the coxswain's T-bone steaks that he was <laughs> saving up for something special. All, all the sort of business. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sam, in a number of occasions, uh, some of the patrol boats went up uh, some of the PNG rivers, you know, yep. up at the Seapick and the Fly. Um, I think they hadn't been done for for decades, you know, navigating those those waterways. Um, what was it like and why did why did he do it? Well, I suppose the short answer is because the river was there to some <laughs> extent. <laughs> but it was a challenge. Uh, and the Sepik, uh, uh, I mean, I'd read up on PNG history, the RAN history in PNG, and I knew that uh, during World War I, two Australian destroyers looking for a German vessel had ascended the Sepik some way. And we did, firstly, we did a couple of visits to a place called Angorn, which is only about 50 miles up the river. But then later, in Itapi in company with Ladaba, we went up to Ambunti, which is about 230 miles up the river. And I think that uh, was certainly the furthest distance that REN ships had been up the river. Although I did read just another the other day that an army LSM had probably gone further, one of the, the bigger LSMs that the army had. Uh, Going up the river was, was, I mean, we had an old German chart, just like the, the people who went up the Fly River later had old German charts of the, or old charts of the river. Mm. Uh, 
they were reasonably accurate. Uh, we used to run on one engine when in the river, because uh, the, the navigational risk was a lot of floating islands, of debris, floating mm -hmm. logs, etc. And in that, uh, in my time in PNG with the patrol boats going into the CPIC, we never had any problem with log strikes or damage to underwater damage. I subsequently heard that the patrol boats, when I went back to Port Moresby, and I was director of maritime operations, I found that the patrol boats weren't going into the rivers anymore because the popular conventional wisdom was that they damaged themselves under with screw, propeller damage, screw damage, etc. And then I found out that they were also running on two engines in the river. And I think if you run on two engines in those sort of situations, you, you triple multiply the risk of screw damage mm. because you've got two and the risk of one propeller throwing log into the other river. Yeah. And I think that was our secret in those first times, just run on one engine going up the river. And did you do any sort of charting of the river during that time, navigation? Oh, we, we, I mean, those rivers, they're changing all the mm. time to some extent. I mean, the basic direction of the river remains, but there's few principles. You know, you find the deep water on, you know, the, the outward side of turns normally, the sort of thing, that, uh, and, you, and you look for the faster flowing water, etc. Um, and we did, I mean, just as Jerry was saying about the benefit for future people coming after you, we, we did have these German charts and we corrected the German charts where there were major changes in the river and then made sure the other patrol boats going into the river had these charts available. Mm. Was the camera crew on board when you did the... The CPIC patrol, CPIC they patrol? had the camera crew on board for that. But I didn't... Get, Jerry went in the, uh, the fly in the patrol boats, so I didn't go near the fly in a patrol boat. Uh, so that's another story for these gentlemen. Yeah. Jerry, leading into that, the, the Fly River expedition, you know, what did you do uh, well, during that activity? It, yeah, small capitals for that. It, it, it wasn't really planned as an expedition. It was simply a, a little bit in our program, Fly River area. Mm. Um, and my noik at the time was George Halley, uh, and uh, he was... Um, he, he very sternly warned, warned me not to make, take any risks, and he, he assumed that I didn't know much about the river. In fact, I'd, like Sam, I'd done my homework and I knew a whole lot about the river. I had an old mate in uh, Moresby who had sailed the river and he gave me a useful chart, a lot of useful um, That's uh, Captain wrinkles. Moresby, not the ship Moresby. Mm? <laughs> uh, Ray Taylor, his name was, um, and the father of Papua Navigation, yep. really, um, an amazing old guy. He, he first went to sea in the Queen Mary, uh, but he became a river expert. and. Uh, we had plans to go right up to Kionga, which is 438 miles, uh, and it depended on what the height of the river was. Well, mm -hmm. the river was in good shape, so uh, we got on the river and uh, didn't ask Noik where we could go. We just went like the trappers to get up there as fast as we could, and we were there in two and a half days. So um, that was when we had a problem, because one of the boats, Echo Sounders, had gone out. And we didn't want to have two boats with no echo sounder. We only have one between us. So we waited there for spare parts. And they came in in time for us to com comply with the program and get out the river in due course. Yeah. Um, navigating the fly, uh, I mean, Chris has done it, and he'll, he's probably got his own views on it, but it depends on how the, uh, how the river is behaving. Uh, it can't be forecast what the river height will be it can go from being a, a high river to a low, low river in 48 hours. It drains, although it's not a fast river and doesn't have a big fall, it does seem to lose its river height very quickly. Mm. Um, uh, I've driven big ships on it uh, and the technique for getting ships up and down when they're sort of uh, 75 metres long and maybe displacing 3,800 tonnes is different from the mm. technique for getting patrol boats up and down Because yeah. you spent quite a bit of time after you'd left the Navy working in PNG yeah. and, and you know, in charge of merchant ships. Yeah. And so the Fly River's a bit of a highway for merchant ships I, to travel? I, I think all the rivers are potential highways. Mm. Um, and when I say all, there's a whole string of rivers along the south coast um, extending into the Indonesian side, none of which are as big as the Fly. The Fly is huge. Uh, and on the north coast, the, uh, uh, the Indons have the Mamburano, which is, uh, actually flows, <coughs> flows through a mountain range into an internal valley and, and splits two ways. 
but I think that's probably not navigable. I think there are rivers, uh, rapids in the in the first mountain range it crosses. Uh, but um, the rivers on the south, one of them is certainly used for the big mine that the Americans got, have got in the uh, Star Mountains. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Chris Ritchie, you're in command of, oh sorry, you're XO of Tarakan, I believe. Yeah, oh, so you're in command so of yeah, Tarakan. Yeah. And you took uh, her up uh, the Fly River in 1970. What, what was that like? I, I've listened to Jerry in particular with interest because he knew a lot that I didn't know when I went <laughs> <laughs> We had been uh, in Balawan in northern Sumatra and we were on our way back to Brisbane and we got diverted to go to Kiangra up the fly. About three or four months before WeWAC and other LCHs had deposited a PNGDF engineering company up there to do some road making I think. And they had you know heavy dozers and graders and sort of earth moving equipment. And the river as Jerry had suggested had fallen and WeWAC had not been able to bring them back again. So these blokes have been up there for three months having made the roads and were sitting on the whatnots, you know, watching their movie, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, so we went up, uh, we went to Daru and we picked up uh, Tank Commander Ken Haynes, who was on the PNG staff at the time. And Ken had, um, as I recall, we had a reasonable sort of uh, chart as far as the Strickland. And I, I always thought that had been as a result of some oil exploration that had been mm -hmm. done, you know, somebody had made that chart. Thereafter, it was a bit of a mud map uh, for the rest of the way up to Kionga. Um, two days to get up, an LCH was flat chat at 10 knots, so it took us five and a half days to get up. <laughs> uh, it took us three and a half days to get back. Um, my memory of the river, I mean, and, and this is uh, September 1974, I mean, it was almost uninhabited. Um, mm. You know, there was the odd village that you'd we would sort of go from about 6.30 in the morning to about 18.30. We'd anchor at 18.30. If we could, we'd anchor somewhere near some habitation. We'd have a chat with the locals. We'd swap cigarettes for fish and that sort of thing. And we'd move on the next day. But we saw very few of those villages and we saw very few people. We were pursued on one occasion by a man and his wife and his kid in the canoe who wished to trade with us. And for a packet of sacks of salt, we, gave, we got a fly river turtle tortoise, which we painted red and green to distinguish one side from the other and <laughs> put our name on it <laughs> and eventually released him back. He's probably still there somewhere. <laughs> HMO's Tarakan Fly River in 1974. The, the, the sort of the Kanga, we, 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 we retrieved the equipment. Um, part of the story is that most of the officers, I think, were Australians and uh, most of the officers, or all of the officers, and most of the troops had flown out by caribou back to Port Moresby, and there were very few left. But there were five who apparently didn't wish to fly, so they came with us uh, on what took us three and a half days to get out of the river. It took us another uh, seven and a half days to get to Port Moresby because of the misadventures that fell us, befell us in the Gulf of Papua. And these blokes were by the time they got to Port Moresby, 11 days later, they were seasick. <laughs> I doubt that any of them ever volunteered to go to sea again with the PNGDF. We came out of the river on the evening of uh, Friday the 13th, which was probably not a good choice. Uh, there was a heavy southeasterly swell in the Gulf of Papua. We were banging into it uh, about 2 o'clock in the morning, Saturday morning. We sort of slowed down and said, we better check what's happening in the middle of cargo. Mm. The cargo was mostly okay, but the door had, uh, an LCA's door was secured by two hooks. One of the hooks had totally snapped. Uh, we'd had two other securing arrangements put on further down the door in Singapore because you will recall the incident when Buna lost its door in the mm. Tasman Sea because of that incident. Both of those bolts were gone and the door was being held by one hook. Um, <laughs> we thought we got a problem. Uh, we initially thought we'll weld the door up the welding equipment was kept up forward in a little store that was full of water, so that didn't work. We eventually we passed both cables around the door and brought them back in on the other side and held the door that way. Uh, I then sent a signal. I sent the only immediate signal I ever sent to the LCH. I sent to <laughs> PNG on a Saturday morning, saying, "Look, I'm in a bit of trouble, and you know, if you could send someone out to assist a patrol boat, that'd be good." Uh, I never ever got an answer to that signal. Um, the subsequent mm -hmm. investigation. 
said it had gone through enough comp star Darwin, somebody had ripped it off, put it on a clipboard, forgot about it, so it never ever made it to Port Moresby. Well, Director of Maritime Operations sitting in Port Moresby never got the message. Yeah, we do. No, don't recall it. <laughs> so I went down to Thursday Island I, um, hmm. to get out of the southeasterly swell, and I, I went to TI and had the door fixed there, and eventually got to uh, Port Moresby on the 21st of September. Haven't left the river on the night of the 13th. <laughs> and these, these local fellas that we had, I mean, they, I remember they spent most of the trip in the Gulf of Papua sitting in the shower stall. <laughs> very, very ill, very sick. Uh, another uh, incident that happened to us, we had quite a few defects by then and uh, we expected to pick all, all of the stores up uh, in Port Moresby. Um, Tarangau sounds a lot like Tarakan and that's where our stores ended up in Tarangau. <laughs> in Tarakan, so. But it was, it was a great experience. Um, LCH has spent a fair bit of time in their early days around Papua New Guinea. Um, there was a lot of EOD work that was done with Clearance Diving Team 1. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of survey work that was done with Flinders in the, in the late 80s. Uh, LCH has obviously contributed enormously to um, the Peace Monitoring Group Operation Belisi mm -hmm. on Bougainville, late 80s, early, sorry, late 90s, uh, early 2000s. And then you know, LCHs have sort of gone on to support famine relief and drought relief and PNZ elections in 2012, mm -hmm. cyclone relief in 2007, I think. Yeah. Uh, so they've done a lot of work. The two boats that went up there, Buna and Salamoa, had only been with us for about a year when they went. Um, I recall that Salamoa went up to Peter Slip in Brisbane to, you know, get a brush up before she left for PNG and she came back with a PNG modification which was a whole lot of portaloos in the tank deck. <laughs> that was quite impressive. Uh, and I think it's, it's telling that um, having given those two LCHs to the PNG EDF, when our LCHs finally reached the end of their useful life in 1415, they were all over 40 years old uh, and they were all in fantastic nick because they'd been modernised over their life. Uh, they were pretty robust sort of ships. And one of those, Labyrinth, uh, mm -hmm. who in fact was the first LCH in the Flower River in 73, has gone back to PNG mm -hmm. and has been renamed and is now part of the PNG EDF. Mm -hmm. So they've had a great history in, in PNG mm -hmm. and done some great work there. Yeah. Back in the early 70s, was it uh, only moving heavy equipment around PNG that the LCHs no, did? No, they did, um, I say a lot of it. They, I mean, clearly the LCH was a great vehicle for PNG because, as has been said, the rivers are the highways and then, you know, the, the coast is the, is the way you get from A to B. But there was survey work, there was um, EOD work, there was things like, you know, sort of reef clearance work that was done around villages and that, which was done by CDT1 embarked in uh, LCHs. Yeah, so it was that sort of work. And showing the flag and those sorts of things? No, not so much showing the flag, I don't think. I mean, most of the work that LCHs did was... I mean, LCHs probably never went anywhere unless they were in support of the army, mm. some civil authority, uh, you know, doing some particular civil aid task. And we did a lot of that. Even in Australia, we did a lot of that mm. as well. So they didn't do the sorts of things that, uh, you know, maybe patrol boats did. Uh, that was, it was more uh, a practical task to be done, you know, in a, a particular physical object to be achieved. They've also participated in that exercise paradise uh, series of exercises for decades. And they've gone up here, and I'm not exactly sure what they've done in each exercise, but they've certainly been involved in that for, for a period of 30 years or so. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sam, um, there was one patrol boat I've heard of, um, Madang, uh, and it was unarmed. Uh, and did special clearance duties or something like that? What was, what was yes, that about all yeah. about? Madang, I think, uh, was the last of the PNG patrol boats squadrons to arrive. Uh, she was fully crewed by RAN personnel, mainly divers, commanded by a CD uh, clearance diving officer. Uh, and uh, she didn't have a forward boat for either. She was unarmed. And her role uh, was beach survey work. Somebody, some bright light in Canberra had worked out that... Uh, all right, PNG is going to get independence. We need to know more about the beach, sur the, the 
beaches from the point of view of future amphibious landings, this sort of business. So she embarked on a, a program of uh, quite separate from the rest of the PNG Defence Force and other the patrol boats in terms of this pursuing her own program of beach surveys mm -hmm. around uh, the Papua New Guinea coast. Um, subsequently, I think after her first commission, let's say first 18 months, she, she went back to Australia and was armed and, and screwed up like another PNG patrol boat. And then, uh, as Chris, I think, has been mentioning, uh, the Salamoa under Lieutenant Bob Willis, later hydrographer, uh, took over the beach survey work with clearance divers, etc., mm -hmm. on board. But I'm not sure, uh, I mean, so she, in a way, she was operating quite separate from the rest of us. It was just a one-off. It was a one-off, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Were there any other sort of notable operations that the, the patrol boats did? Well, just one landing craft operation. The first LCH we had in PNG was, in fact, the Balak Papin, which is still mm. part of the Army, Army small ships. And she came up specifically to go round to where the landing had taken place in World War II at Buna and mm. been a successful landing by mainly Australian troops. And there's these small tanks still there in this plantation area on the beach. So Balak Papin went, I actually rode in Balak Papin around the coast. And we had army engineers on board some plant and they recovered about three or four of these small tanks. These were Australian Japanese army. tanks? or No, Australian, Australian army, army ones, tanks. Yeah. And I think one of them's here in the War Memorial in uh, Canberra. We took, took them back to, with these heavy engineering plant the Army had. They sort of skull-dragged these tanks back on board the LCH and took them back to Port Moresby and ultimately back to Australia. Um, other operations? Uh, I've mentioned our overseas trips. It was when the, then, then with the changing, this was a period also when Australian fishing legislation was changing mm -hmm. quite significantly. And I think it was during 1972, Australia for the first time introduced a a fishing, Australian fishing zone, 12 nautical miles, it's then extended to Papua New Guinea. And our patrol boats then started arresting Taiwanese fishing boats, mainly on the north coast around the Vinia Strait area. And it was mainly the Taiwanese or were there other nationalities? Mainly, uh, mainly Thai, in fact, all, from memory, all Taiwanese. Yeah, and what were they uh, searching for? Just tuna or any fish? Tuna and uh, clams, I think, off reefs and things, yeah. Mm -hmm. But long liners too, yeah. Okay. I just just add something from that story that um, talking about the expertise of people who've been up there before. Ken Haynes came on board with his chart and they had a portable echo sounder, which was good because we wiped our portable one off in the, about the first 500 yards of the river. But uh, the first time we ran aground, Ken said, "He said I recognise this spot. This is where I went aground." <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Ken Haynes, of course, was a diver, and I think he'd been, he was, he'd been up might have been the XO of Medang, I think, yeah. and she uh, was up doing the beach survey work. Okay. Um, Lou, you were serving in patrol boats after independence, and so what was happening then? What are your recollections of that time? Well, Greg, I arrived uh, in PNG, in Port Moresby, actually, in April 78 because my command samurai was doing a maintenance period down at Lancron and I stayed there through until about June 79. So I was uh, pleased to find out when I got there that the ship was kind of in reasonable shape and that within the squadron there were a number of folks that I'd known in the past. Red Renagi, for example and Eric Arnie, both of whom reached Colonel level, did midshipman's training with. So I thought, hang on, I've got some buddies here to help me along the way. Paul Trelfel was the squadron commander. I hadn't seen any of these guys because I was in Port Moresby. They were up uh, in uh, Lombrum. I think Carrie Frank was the CEO of PBB Lombrum at that time. And Ben Manoy, uh, who was subsequently passed away, is, was DMAR Ops, I think they called him in those days, Sam. And so after having had a look at... Uh, been picked up at the airport and had a look around the, around the patrol boat, I was then taken through by the by the my XO Chris Frost. Um, so there was he and I were the only two Australian officers <laughs> on board. The rest were Papua New Guinea guys, and went through the crew. And it was interesting. I, it dawned on me that there were people on that ship from the Highlands, all across almost every province within Papua New Guinea. But fortunately, not that that's an issue. I thought there I was, 25 years old, been in the Navy six years. How's this going to work? Well, I soon met the charge 
um, Warren Officer Sam, uh, who'd done his training at Narimba. Boy, was I glad I had him on board. And the second one was Gibson Harrowy, who was actually from uh, the Highlands, who was the coxswain. Now those guys, PO, sergeant, but they'd been in the Navy, P and GDF, whatever, for a long time, and they considered themselves Navy. And fortunately also, the R radio operator was uh, leading seaman or Corporal Poray, who was also Australian trained. Um, so they knew a lot of things that needed to be done and to move forward. Having said that, I quickly found out that the rest of the ship's company um, were, I was quite impressed with their professionalism from a seamanship point of view and the way they went about their work. Um, it was not what I expected and maybe I misjudged it when I got there. So anyway, back to Sam's story about travelling on one engine, I had no option but to depart Port Moresby to head off on my first patrol back to PB Lombrum because we only had one engine we were missing uh, a head. Uh, on the, I think it was the port engine. So anyway, we made it back uh, safely, my first uh, first voyage, so to speak, and the part was there for us to do that. I then met, and then it was Reg and Eric uh, on the wharf and Carrie, and it was really great to catch up with those guys, and I've been in contact with them over the years, and we often think back, saying, gee, how did we get away with all that stuff? <laughs> and one anecdote was that we'd have inspections every so often by people passing through, but the CEOs and the XOs used to get together and say, who's being inspected next week? And it'd be, so, you know, Reg in Ladava. So everyone would make sure that Reg had all the stuff. Yep. And then it'd go through and move stuff before. And then we figured out that, hang on a minute, why aren't any of our stores requests being forwarded? Well, all the reports that were, it said, okay, everyone's got everything. Why are you ordering more of this stuff? So fortunately, not long after I'd been there, there was a bit of a cyclone, we had to go up and do a bit of a SAR. So we took some lessons from our elders of the past and lots of things were lost overboard <laughs> and we got back. But I don't think we ever, I don't think we ever fooled Carrie Frank or Dave Angus, who I think was the XO of the base at that time, nor Ben. But from an operational point of view, my tasking, as I recall, apart from the normal sovereignty patrols, was to um, go around and recheck as many of the anchorages and or uh, areas that were in HP 10 and I thank Sam and Jerry for that, that kept me amused for quite some time. I suspect, and in fact they were quite accurate, but I suspect there was a linkage between these these places in HP 10 and excellent fishing spots, but maybe I'm being <laughs> presumptive there. That took up quite a bit of time actually and we would send the reports back through DMAR Ops back to the Hydro and in addition I came and fell in love with hydro notes. I'm not quite sure how many of those that I put together were published by the good hydrographer, but maybe one or two got through. But the objective there was, amongst all of us in the patrol boat squadron, was to try and update AHP 10, because I don't think it had been updated in certain areas since the days of Sam and, and Jerry, and it was quite an important thing from DMAR Ops's point of view for us to do. But the other thing was, was how do we and being only 25, how do we maintain operational effectiveness, whatever that meant to a 25-year-old patrol boat driver? So we managed to convince DMAR Ops to synchronise our patrols so that we'd either meet up with our colleagues, one of the other colleagues, one of the other boats, mm -hmm. either on departure for patrol and who's coming back or vice versa, do a little bit of seamanship, off-watch moves, toes and those sorts of things. And that was pretty, that was pretty good actually, but the other thing was weapons efficiency. We didn't have that much problem getting small arms ammunition, but 50 cal and uh, 40 60 uh, was a bit tricky. Not quite sure we know what to do with it if it came to pass, but their drills were quite good. But we managed through the squadron and with Carrie's help and the other CEO's help to actually distribute the allocation, which was quite small, across the squadron. So at least the gun crews, about every couple of months got to have a bit of a shoot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why we looked forward in those days to, I think it was called Exercise Paradise then, mm -hmm. where you get a couple of patrol boats from Australia to come up. And so how we got around the bits and pieces of exchanging ammunition that we'd send our fellows over to HMAS Barricade or whatever it was, and they'd let them have a shoot, get up skill, which was quite good. But overall, I was quite impressed with the engineering skills. Um, and I think under the tutelage of Warren Officer Sam, who was and remember trained I think it was one of the original movie, he was quite old actually. Um, the other guys came along quite well, I think. 
Um, I think there were lots of close calls, which our memory is lost. But the other thing we used to do was have to go around and visit what I think was called the PNG Coast Watcher Organisation, yeah. which was the transition over. Now, I do recall doing about 10 visits over that 12-month period I was there, just to have it. Most of them were planters, uh, not that old. Have a look at their radios and those sorts of things, but I'm not quite sure how active they were in those days. But the sovereignty patrols, I think the local population in the various areas very much welcomed them. Mm -hmm and showing them over the boat and all of those sorts of things. And so while it was probably not as high a level of operational intensity as some may have imagined, I think it was, it was quite, uh, quite a good thing to be doing and quite educative and indeed character building for a young officer of 25. <laughs> Jerry, did you have something to say there? Yeah, about uh, those uh, spots, that, that I a think. long burst from there, which I don't blame him for, because he said, said a lot of interesting things. But in the early stages, he mentioned his satisfaction with his coxswain, who was Petty Officer Gibson Harrowy. He's the bloke I sent under the water to get the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well done, Jerry. trained him well. Put a bit of steam on it. Hopefully he's learned to swim since then. <laughs> now, I recall he still wasn't too keen, actually, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> to swim, that is. Sam, any final comments on you? You've been through series one, two, and three here of uh, of the RAN and PNG. Any final comments on your, your many years working there? Well, my connections with PNG still continue to some extent because over the last twelve months, I found myself involved in a, doing a maritime border security study of Papua New Guinea, and I've been struck by how you know some of the problems we were facing back there in the 1970s and 60s with the formation of the PNG Defence Force are still present to some. I mean, there's still a lack of appreciation of the archipelagic significance of the country. The fact that the patrol boats only conduct patrols uh, if they're being funded by the National Fisheries Authority. I agree entirely with what Lou was saying about the importance of these sovereignty patrols. I mean, it's a widespread archipelagic country with many remote islands under PNG sovereignty, not all of which are occupied, inhabited, and a, a vital task, I think, of the patrol boats when they were being fully operated was to do these regular sovereignty patrols around the traps and show the flag and that sort of stuff, and none of that happens at all now, with the consequence that the, you know, the country is still potentially wide open to all sorts of smuggling, legal activities at sea. Uh, foreign fishing boats are coming into the waters, uh, uh, not being looked after properly in terms of the landing in remote villages, uh, trading with the locals, all this sort of stuff. Uh, Jerry spoke about the, uh, the river systems in the border areas, particularly on the southern border area with uh, Indonesia. Uh, that's largely unpatrolled at present, and, and there's all sorts of legal activities apparently going on across that border. One of the ironies here is that, uh, going back to the days Chris and Jerry and the Fly River, you know, the, if there any movement of people, it was from the Indonesian side to the PNG side to get access to services, health, education, goods, etc. Now it's completely the other way. Indonesians have pursued a very active program of development, economic development mm. on their side of the border and the movement of the people. It's the Papua New Guinea side people who are now moving back to the Indonesian side to get health, education, to buy things, etc., etc. because the Indonesian side is much better looked after and patrolled. The river systems run from the Indonesian side and under the PNG side. Uh, supposed to be a legal trade in weapons are highly sought after in PNG, particularly in the highlands. Big trade of weapons illegally into Papua New Guinea. Marijuana and other crops are being grown, in the, particularly in the highlands. So there's a trade in weapons into the country, drugs out of the country. And that's a lot of it's going on being conducted in the, on the Indonesian side, the southern border area, where it's possible to go by canoe for, within one day from Indonesian side up the rivers on the PNG side, then one day's walk into the southern highlands where there's all the other provinces where there's drugs are being grown. So there's, a, you know, there's all those sort of problems going on. Uh, yeah, so I mean, the, you know, the problems we've talked about are still there. Uh, and in many ways, you know, there's sort of more, because of the lack of resources on the PNG side, the, the problems of the maritime border security are as bad as they ever were in Papua New Guinea. Okay. Jerry, mm -hmm. any final thoughts on, the, on your time that you spent in PNG? Yeah, um, if, if I could echo something that 
that Sam touched on in an earlier presentation um, in this series, um, the, the PNG Defence Force at present and the PNG government at present seem to be pretty uninterested in exercising um, their skills to use the rivers as a means of getting in and out of the hinterland, uh, the interior. Um, when I first went to Kionga in the merchant service role, uh, there was a PNG, a PIR company based at Kionga. I don't know what they did. They didn't, uh, if they did any patrolling, they didn't do it on the river. Uh, they might have done it in Land Rovers and on foot, but they didn't use the river. The company's not there any longer. The Navy, the PNG uh, Defence Force Maritime, doesn't use the river, and I don't think they use the, uh, the CPIC either, Sam. No. Uh, uh, they just stay right away from it. And I think that's um, strategically a very unwise decision. Um, it, it's not only knowing how to use the river, it's... Uh, uh, people having the skills to use it. Uh, driving a, a big ship down the river is a bit like uh, driving a fully loaded ship down the river is like trying to drive a fully laden supermarket trolley yeah. down a sloping winding ramp, if you can imagine that. that it, it's quite difficult. Um, so PNG is not making use of their rivers and as Sam has already pointed out, they're not really doing a lot of patrolling of their own waters, and I think that's a shame. Chris Ritchie, any last thoughts? Uh, one last story, I suppose, because my PNG experience is not as vast, clearly, as Jerry or Sam, um, and I was really limited to this, this one time. And I did go back in the 90s with IP division. I took some people around for a, a week around all of New Guinea. Um, everything that has been said I agree with but the one last story to lighten it up a bit when we came out of Kiongo and uh, these five fellas had a movie projector and a movie and you remember what ships movies were like back in the 70s everybody got on the upper deck and you mm. flashed the thing up and away you went well we didn't have a projector we didn't have a movie so they only had one movie and they'd clearly seen it a thousand times in the three months they'd been there so <laughs> we set it up yep. on the flag deck after the funnel there on a and LCH and we settled down to watch it and uh, it was great until we got to the time where you changed the reel because the second reel was from a different film. <laughs> <laughs> we, we watched that. <laughs> Everybody clapped and applauded and they knew some of the lines so it didn't matter. <laughs> Lou, any final thoughts? Uh, my time in PNG, I think um, it's easy to reflect on the good times. I'm sure there were some challenging times. But I think my fondest memories really are of the ship's company, particularly the gentleman I mentioned, but also of Carrie Frank, Reg Renaghi and Eric Arney. And I guess those relationships were formed when, with Eric and Reg anyway, when we did our midshipman's time together in HMO Sydney. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those sort of relationships last forever, despite the arguments over rugby or whatever it is, whose ship goes faster. I think that's one thing that perhaps um, we kind of maybe miss out a little bit on those personal relationships with our colleagues in not just PNG but otherwise. But that's that's my memory. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, sadly, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Sam, Jerry, Chris, and Lou uh, for their insights, and my thanks to you for joining us. Uh, we look forward to your company for the next episode. But bye for now. <laughs>